this thing to fly off, so just. <laughs> yes, it's good to be here uh, and uh, be able to bring God's Word to you. Uh, it's hard to believe it's been about two years, it'll be two years soon that I, I left uh, and that uh, you've been blessed with Nate, uh, the man with the big pastor's heart, which is uh, really what we've been praying for. So it's really good to be able to, uh, to know that you guys are, have been blessed and under God's care by his ministry and his family's ministry to you. Today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 5 of the book of Romans. I've been teaching a little bit at, at Hope Church, I'm sorry, not Hope Church, First Press, and uh, I, I did that a little while at Hope Church, but uh, at First Press, I've been filling in at some Sundays, and I, I like uh, to find myself planted and situated in a book uh, and not bounce all over the place, so this is where I'm in Romans, I've uh, been working through that, and we're at chapter 5, and Romans is a pivotal book for the Reformation. It's a pivotal book in the life of Martin Luther, especially the beginning of it. Uh, so uh, I thought it would be apropos for uh, bringing you God's word today from the book of Romans, speaking about justification of faith and how important that is in our life. We, in this very room, um, the Presbytery met, and they interviewed an examined gentleman for the ministry, and they asked them these poignant questions about justification and about imputation, about the gospel, and, and these uh, are uh, impressive times to be uh, around these kinds of examinations. I know that uh, Ray wrote her little uh, blurb about that in, in the uh, newsletter of how she, she sat behind me when she was right, uh, absorbing all sin, and she goes, wow, this is pretty important, isn't it? And it is really important. But these words are of words of justification, imputation, expiation, sanctification, aren't just words for prospective pastors in teaching elders to be memorizing or to have fluid in their in their vocabulary or be able uh, not to be able to give a answer to but for all of us to be able to use these words that are handy scrabble words <laughs> but are much more powerful than that these are words that are not just for people sitting in ivory towers these are words that Paul gave to people, to saints living on the ground, the boots on the ground. This is for people, for all of us, to be able to absorb and to be able to embrace and to be able to have an ongoing definition, not just succinct, but ongoing, our appreciation and our understanding of what these words mean. So Paul gives us uh, this letter by God's grace and by God's intent. He gives us from the pen of Paul this, this great book about uh, justification. Now, in, our, in our, um, our reading today, we're at, chapter, we're at chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, so turn in your Bible with me to that place. And I'll pray before I read. Dear God, we ask your blessing upon our time together, being our Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us a new heart and a new mind, giving us a new desire, a new appetite. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that he has come in our life and dwells within us, the very Spirit of Christ, so that we may be able to carry on this life that you began in us, and you continue, Lord, to preserve us and endure with us. And we pray that you would be with us now as we come to a place in our life of this Sabbath day where someone is 
reading and speaking about your word, and we are gathered by people who I pray are desiring to hear it. And so, Lord, I pray that your power and strength will be felt in our time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his love, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, the beginning of this chapter begins with therefore, so there has to be something that comes before it that is important for there to be a therefore. And he says here that we have been justified, we have peace with God, and we now have the ability to rejoice. Now, what are we to be rejoicing in? What are we to be rejoicing about? And for you to get an understanding of why this is so important, we have to go and do a quick survey of the beginning of, of, the, of the chapters 1 through 4 to get an understanding of why this is great news, why we even should rejoice in what justification is all about. We've been justified, so what? What does that mean? What, what does it all stand for? Because you can ask that question. So what? We've been justified. You've been justified. What does that mean? Well, turn with me to the beginning of chapter 1 of book of Romans here. <clears throat> and we see that Paul is writing to a church that is made up of Gentiles and Romans, and, and Jews, excuse me, of Jews and Gentiles. And there seems to be a conflict. There seems to be a, some tension going on. And uh, we learn about this tension as... Uh, we get to, uh, to later chapters, but how Paul presents himself in this uh, resolution is to try to find common ground. He tries to find a common denominator amongst everyone because there's a great difference between being a Jew and being a Gentile. The Jews know it, the Gentiles know it, and they flaunt it. The, Gentile, the Jews can be flaunting it in the face of the Jew, Gentiles and saying, listen, we've been God's people from the very beginning. And now we want to, you to understand who we are. And the Gentiles are saying, ha, huh, I think you lost it. Now we got it. So now there's this tension within the church, and Paul is writing to some people that he knows. He knows some of the people in this church. But most of them he does not. So what he does is gives them an, a, a theological framework to come to this understanding of who he is, who God is, and who they are. And Paul starts this beginning part of the letter by, by this uh, great statement of chapter six, verse 16 of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also to the Greek. For in it, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is what rocked Martin Luther. Remember, it is not your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. Faith saves no one. It is the object of our faith that saves us. Faith is the instrument that God uses to cause our heart to be changed to desire this kind of righteousness, desire this kind of position with God. And God says, through, through Paul's writing, this is what I think of you Jews and you Gentiles, of all humanity. And so he goes on in verse 18, he says, a righteousness in verse 17, has been revealed from God, from heaven. And now verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. So let's get to the common denominator. Let's get to what all we all have in common, which the world should know that we have in common with them. We understand what it is to be like verses 18 through 32. We may come from a church, we may talk differently, but we can really relate and associate and understand who they are and their life outside of the church. And we understand what it is to be sinners. And we understand how very good sinners we are. And how, as Nate says, we admit to it. We like it. So we need someone outside of ourselves to save us from it. The world needs to know that's who we are. And we understand that. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. What we see here is God is telling us what our predicament is, what our DNA is. This is what we're looking at is biblical anthropology. This is humankind that as God sees it. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have a creator-creature distinction. We are not the creator. We are creatures. But what has happened since the fall of, Roman, of Genesis 3 is that now we consider ourselves in the place of God, and we subordinate God. We put him on a shelf. We give him a place. We define who he is. We define his attributes. We define his plan. We conjure up all kinds of ways to discern what God is doing in our lives. Not through the word, but through our own creativity. And we follow and looking for wise people, men and women to tell us what's it all about. Therefore, God gave them up because they exchanged the truth for God and a lie and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to these dishonorable passions. And then he goes on and he says, since in verse 28, for since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are wonderful words, are they not? 
Endearing words, words to make friends by, words to build churches by. Who wants to come to a church that talks about this stuff? Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And then he goes on and he has more endearing words about humanity. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 3, there's no one righteous. He's talking about you and me, folks. What then, are Jews better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged all that Jews and Greeks are all the same. They're in the same family. They have so much in common. I've just laid it out for you. But let me add some more. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If I went on the streets and I said this to people, they would say, but that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm not like that against God. And what's so important here is that I, what I'm trying to build a case for is that what do we have, if this is who we really are, if this is our nature, if this is our DNA, what on earth do we have to rejoice about? We rejoice about this, that we're enemies of God, that we're hostile to God, that we hate God, that God's wrath is coming upon us, that we deserve to die, that we're not good at all. That before God, we're not good at all. We have no righteousness. There's nothing that God could find out that, hey, maybe you're better than the person sitting next to you, so you may have a chance, uh, but not them. God learns on a, uh, he, he uh, grades on a curve, looking for the bad guy, so he'll try to find some other people that aren't so bad. But that's not how, that's not how it works. That's where Chapter 5 is so important because he's trying to tell us you had nothing to rejoice about. You had nothing to live for. You had nothing to look forward to. But now something happened. Well, back to chapter 3, verse 21. But now this great adversative conjunction, this great adversative phrase, but now. There's some, there's some great but nows in the Bible. Galatians 4, formerly when they did not know God, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. First Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You see the contrast. There's a major cosmic shift because of that word, but. But you, were not God, but you are now God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is where Paul writes, it is, this is, should be amplified 10,000 times, but now. I've been to a church where somebody was preaching on this, and it was, the but now just rolled right along like it really didn't matter, like it was another part of a sentence. And I wanted to go, no, man, this is like big. But now is huge because but now something has changed. A righteousness of God has now been shown to us apart from you trying and me trying to be lawmakers and law keepers. We can't do it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law is good. The law isn't a problem. We are. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has to judge. He would not be just if he didn't. But what he does is that he also justifies for us. He is the one who now becomes the justifier. He now is the one who understands the predicament and gives his own life for you and me. And we can come up with an understanding of justification. We can say it. We've said it. For those of us who have been examined for it, we have a, you know, we have a, a sentence, maybe a couple sentences. You know, it's a, it's a declaration of forensic or legal standing before God once sinners, but now forgiven. We are now in a right relationship with God. But I like to read just to pull out all the stops on what this all means so that you understand how big of a definition it really deserves. One theologian writes it this way, the doctrine of justification means that in God's sight, now I hope you can embrace yourself around these words, that in God's sight, the ungodly person now in Christ has perfectly kept the moral law of God. Imagine, God looks at you and me as if we have kept everything perfect. Is that not something to rejoice in? Which also means that in turn, that in Christ, he has perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. Man, that's, the, that's perfection. It means that saving faith is directed to the doing and the dying of Christ alone, and not to the good works of the inner experience of the believer. That means that the Christian's righteousness before God is in heaven at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ and not on earth within the believer. It is a transaction that took place outside of us. It means that the ground of our justification is the vicarious work of Christ for us, not the gracious work of the Spirit in us, now, I'm not, we're not saying, he's not saying that the Spirit of God is not working in us. He's not saying that there aren't benefits within us. But all of this has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. It is not by works. It is not by being law keepers. Romans tells us that over and over again. It's impossible for you and me to love each other perfectly, to love God perfectly, to be law keepers it's impossible. You have broken laws this morning. We all have. It means that the faith righteousness of justification is not personal, but vicarious. Not infused, but imputed, counted, reckoned on your account. The Bible says that Jesus took our sins, took our unrighteousness upon himself, not knowing sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not knowing sins, but then gave us his righteousness as if it was ours, but it isn't, it's his. We can't claim it. Some churches teach that it's imputed. I'm sorry, it's infuse. It's your righteousness. It's my righteousness. God started this work in us, and so we needed to, we need to do everything we can to create even more righteousness within us as if we could. 
Now realize this, folks, and I've said this to this congregation many times, that God can't love you any more than he loves you right now. Now isn't that an amen? He can't love you. He can't love you any more than he loves you now. Because of you? No, because of Christ. He can't love his son anymore, so he can't love us anymore. So he says, it's not infused, but imputed, not experiential, but judicial, not psychological, but legal, not on your terms, but a given, but not your own righteousness, but a righteous, righteousness alien to us and outside of us, not earned by graciously given through faith, not earned, but graciously given through faith in Christ. It is itself a gift of grace. That's what we have to rejoice in. That's why, that's why justification is so important. That's why he says, therefore. All of this he has talked to us and mentioned in chapters 1 through 4. And then he comes up and he says, oh, the Jews may have an argument. So you'll read a time in here that, that there's a, an argument. Paul's going to come up with, someone's going to say something that they didn't like in what he said. They're going to say they disagree with something, and Paul goes through this mock discussion and role-playing and saying, oh, but what about our father Abraham? He was righteous, and we go on chapter 5 realizing that, that, that Abraham was justified before the law was ever given to him. So you can't boast. You can't rejoice in that because you have nothing to rejoice in. But he says, verse 5, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is now written to believers. Something has had to happen. Romans 3.21 has had to happen. This transaction had to take place by faith, entrusting God's word and the character of God, the faith that God has given to us, which is a gift, now tells us to realize that we can reach out to this gift of grace that God has given to us because we desperately need it. And he says here, therefore, since we have done that, and I pray that all of you have reached out to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you realize that you have no good reasons to stand before God and give excuses for why the way that you are other than this is who you are. We have, we, he says, we've been justified by faith. This is what we have something to rejoice about. You've been justified, so what? He says, now we have peace with God. Remember, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4 tells us how we've been enemies of God, how we've been in conflict with God, how God is hostile toward us, how we don't have any but now. It's what is now. There is no hope. There is no glory. What has happened is that you, Paul says, you have no hope in yourself. He says to us that you, you you're, were meant to glorify God. As you are going through all this, this new catechism, as you look at the creeds, as you look at the Westminster Confession, the shorter catechism, you see that God created us in the end to glorify him and to enjoy him. But what happened in Romans 1 is that we exchanged the truth of God. We exchanged the truth of God about who we are, and we try to seek our own God, which is the person in the mirror, which is the person or thing or whatever thought that we look at and give credit to, which we then glorify as Nate was asking about what does glorification mean? What does glory mean? And it says here that they did not glorify God. They fell short of the glory of God. So he says here, now we have peace with God. We are now in right standing with God because someone gave us peace, and that's Christ. 
Now remember, the peace of God is not having peace with God. People are looking for the peace of God, but they don't want God involved. They don't want to do it the way God wants to do it. They want to seek their own peace with God through philosophy, through nature, through anything, through people, through all kinds of things. People want peace. They want to get back to, as I've said before when I've talked about this, and I know people that have heard me you know, three, four years ago all remember everything I've ever said. But everybody's trying to get back into the Woodstock Garden, are they not? They want to get back to the garden, Joni Mitchell writes. Or the, and the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young sang. We want to get back to the garden. They want to get back to the place where there's peace, where there's kumbaya, where there's utopia. But they just don't want it on God's terms. But we can have peace with God because that's our biggest problem. Once we have peace with God, then we can have Philippians 4, 7, for the peace of God that transcends all understandings will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And it all comes, as he says in verse 1, through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, he says, first we've been justified, we have had peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now through Jesus, through this justification that has given to us by Christ, we have also obtained this access, this introduction, this place that we've never been before. We've never been there before. But now in Christ, we can go to a place where we have access to God himself. Why? Because he now, as a king, acknowledges us in his court. He bows his head and says, you now can have an audience with me. Why? Because you're so good looking? Because you're so good? Because you've done so much? No, because of a man named Jesus Christ. That's why we can enter and have access and be introduced, as it says here, be introduced into, it's like a, a spatial place, into this grace that was never ours before, is ours now. Because we've been justified by Christ. Into this grace which we now stand. What does the Bible say about standing? Well, without Christ, this is what we stand. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. They'll not have a song. They'll not have a word to sing. They'll never have, they, they won't be able to even have any grounds. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This is what God thinks. Verse chapter 24 of Psalms. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? This is why we have something to rejoice in. We have something to exult in. Now, this is not just feeling happy. This is a, just a, an applause, a roar. As you've ever been to a game or you've ever been anywhere where you can't hear yourself even think because it's been so loud, this is the kind of exulting, this is the kind of rejoicing he is talking about. Now, we don't always feel like that, but it's the, it's the compass in our very hearts that keeps us going because we know we have access with God through Jesus Christ. We know we now have grace that we don't deserve. We now have peace with God and we'll never be outside of that peace because of Christ. 
This, he says, we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory. We had no hope. Now we've got hope. We had no glory. There was no hope of glorifying God. There was no hope of other than self-glorification, which it says in Romans 1, is perverse to God. But now we have this hope of now of restoring or bringing us to a place of glorifying God that we never had any chance of doing before. And then he says, it's more, folks. In verse 3, there's more than that. It's, that's not enough to have access. It's not enough to stand in grace. It's not enough to be at peace with God. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's hard to say, is it not? We rejoice in our sufferings. That's like Fonzie saying, I'm sorry. He comes out of his mouth. He can't say it. Rejoice in our sufferings. Boy, I'll tell you, sufferings are, they're, they're, they're afflictions. It's that word that I used to use, and it, I love it, the word flipsis. It's that word of, of being squeezed till you feel as your head's going to pop off being crushed that you aren't going to be able to breathe anymore. It can be anything. It's all, all afflictions. As Jesus says, in this life, you're going to have tribulations. But rejoice, take good heart, because I've overcome the world, John 16. There's all kinds of squeezings going on. It can be little. It can be big. But who likes paper cuts? Who likes any kind of pain? It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. It can be little. It can be the drip, drip, drip of life till it gets so much that you can't stand it anymore. It encompasses all of it. And he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. What he is saying here is that we rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. In the midst of them, we can rejoice. Knowing. How do we rejoice in our sufferings? Because of that word, knowing. What do we know? What on earth, what knowing do we need to know that's going to give us the ability to rejoice in our sufferings? Because he, he tells us that there's a process at work when we suffer. Because suffering for the believer produces or works something else. And the word here is endurance, or the word perseverance. When you, when you dissect the word perseverance, it's got a prefix, and the, the prefix is under, and the main word is living place. So what he is saying here is that a person who is suffering is given the ability by God because we've been justified. We no longer are an enemy of God. He's taking care of the very worst thing that could ever take place in our life. I know it's hard when it's dark in our lives, when we feel that everything is falling apart, but justification is key. It's key. Because knowing that, we know that all things work together for good to those who know the Lord and love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And that was being recipients of justification, being recipients of, the, of Christ's love on the cross for us. So we know that we can now in suffering that God promises to be with us so that we may live under pressure. That's what he's talking about. Because we know this, we have the ability, as you've heard me say here, even when we're in a fetal position and we can't breathe, we still know and we still have that hope that doesn't leave us that God is in control. And why on earth he's bringing this in my life, I know it's for my sanctification, but wow, this is enough. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God has 
As it says there, there's no temptation that has overcome you that is common to man, but God is faithful and will give you a way out so that you can endure, so that you can live under it. That's what that means, Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 10. So what he's saying here that we have this suffering that works or produces this kind of ability to live under that pressure. And then this endurance produces a qualified person, a character, a person who's been tempered, a person who's been hot, then frozen, and hot, and frozen, and steel becomes harder and harder through that process. We have the ability to endure it because we are now qualified. We have the ability. Well, God doesn't disqualify us because of Christ. And you know what? Being qualified means that you can't live up to it. But we are qualified, that's what he says here, that we have produced character, the integrity. It gives us the ability to be able to be seen by people that we are sinners of the utmost, but we have a Savior that is out of this world and a God who's given us a love that we don't deserve, and we stand in this grace, not because we deserve it, but because God has given it to us by his own sovereign will. And this character produces hope. Remember, hopeless people in in the beginning chapters, we now have hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the reason why we understand all this and we can rejoice is because he tells us here, it's because of God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Read chapter 8. And it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how God's love is now seen in ways that we could never see before because of his presence in our life and opening our eyes to be able to see that. Now he goes in verses 1 through 5 is the so what. What's the big deal? Well, I hope you can see there's a big laundry list of big deals. Because you were at a, you were at a negative number that you can't, there's no, not enough zeros after. And now you're at a complete, the same way. You're at perfection because of Christ. In verses 6 through 11, it's sort of a review, I think, of where we just come from. Notice what he says. For while we were still weak, he wants to keep on reminding us of our condition so that we continue to rejoice. For while we were still weak, he says, at the right time, Christ died. Notice, weakness, Christ died dies for the ungodly. The adjectives just keep on coming, folks. He just keeps on throwing these wonderful terms at us. We're weak. We're ungodly. How terrible to think about ourselves this way. We got to stop thinking about ourselves this way. We won't have a very good self-image if we continue to think that the Bible tells us that you're a sinner, that you're ungodly, that you're an enemy of God. For one will scarcely die. Notice there's death a lot in here. For scarcely somebody will die for a righteous person. No, perhaps a good person may dare die at any given time. Verse 8, but God shows his love. This is the demonstration that God has given to us. We don't know, God, do you still love me? My life rots. This is a terrible day. These are terrible weeks. These are terrible months. He says, but God shows his love on the cross that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what this justification is all about. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we we live by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, again, review time, we were reconciled to God. Why? How? By the death of God of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his faith. If he started that work with us, 
Philippians tells us that he'll see it to the very end. Nothing can diminish the work of Christ, no matter how terrible life is. As the Bible tells us, what they can do is take your life, but they can't take your relationship to God away. And then finally he says, wait a minute, there's more. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Folks, it's, it's so important that we understand how important justification is in our life. Why? Because in closing chapter 8, everybody's beloved passage, right? Chapter 8, toward the end. This was one of the first sermons I gave when I came here, and I'm sure you all remember it. Uh, it's first... <laughs> Notice it says here, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, not, God's not calling tribulations good. He's not calling the terrible, evil things good. He's just saying that all these things, these problems, these things, these issues, sufferings that come in your life, God will, by his grace and his love for us, use them for our good and for his glory, because that's the purpose. And those whom he's predestined, he has called. And those whom he has called, he has justified. And to those he's justified, he's glorified. We not only are seeking God glory, the fact is that God is promising us glorification, that this body someday is going to no longer hurt us. He's telling us that even now, as the, the children's message was this morning, is that by our obedience, by our trusting, by our loving, we are already now glorifying God and receiving that glory upon ourselves. But notice what he says here in these other verses. What shall then we say to these things? Notice he's always asking questions. He's always expecting someone to say, so what? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, him, how will not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Notice, notice the ground of all this. Verse 30, it is God who justifies. He brings justification up in this passage when he's talking about suffering. Justification is the very ground for us to be able to glorify God in our suffering, for us to make sense of life. He says, it is God who justified. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall this tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Justification makes it all possible, folks. If we have not been justified by faith, through Christ, then we have none of this promise. Romans 8, 30, 28 to the end of 39 means nothing. We have no power. We have no hope. We have no purpose. Justification makes it all possible. That's how important justification is to the people. Not just to people studying, but to people loving and trusting and living for Jesus. That's how important that is. So I pray that in this tremendous bullet train ride to Romans, that I didn't hear anybody's vertebrae crack. You may need to go see a massage, uh, a masseuse, but this is important. I sat here and listened to this on that day when there was that going on, and I'm saying, 
I wonder if people really understand how important it is to everyone sitting in a church and not just to these few men who are coming forward. It is so important that Paul gives it to us in the book of Romans so that we may rejoice in it. So I pray that if you don't know Jesus, that it's a shocker to understand how God sees us without Christ. But the good news, that's the bad news, the good news is not only good, it is spectacular news that God loves us and he sent his son to die for us to be this substitute, to be this propitiation so that we may be right with him in legal standing. And as that said, that we have kept the law perfectly. When he looks upon you and me, he sees his son. In turn, he then sees perfect law keepers and perfect loving people. I hope that blows your mind as it should every day as we are reminded of this, that justification is not just for ivory tower. It's for every pedestrian that walks on earth that, look, that wants to glorify God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your glory. We thank you for giving us this word. We do, forget, we do ask for forgiveness when we lose track. We lose track of the reason why we've been given new life. That the glory of God, the word itself, Lord, we understand from your word tells us that the glory of God in the Old Testament talks about the weightiness, given a place of honor, given a place that takes up space in our lives, that always points us back home. No matter what distracts us, our eyes are always focused upon you. And the trouble with us, Lord, as we've read in Romans 1, is also the other word in Greek that we use for glory. It is one of an opinion, Lord, that we are orthodox in our understanding of who you are, that we are right thinkers, we have a right opinion, that we are not heterodox, that we have other opinions, but that we are people who now have an understanding, a right understanding, a biblical understanding of who you are. So Lord, I pray for those who are here today who need to have this understanding changed. I pray that, Lord, your spirit comes and changes their thinking, changes their opinion of who you are because you have told us the opinion that you have of us outside of Christ. That they would come running because there is no other name to be saved under but Jesus. And for those of us who have been justified by this faith, it is my prayer, Father, that we enjoy and embrace and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and rejoice in our understanding that we have now been given honor to enter into this sphere of grace in your presence because of Christ. And that it's not just for Sundays, it's for every moment of every day when we breathe. Longing for that day when we enter into that place you prepared for us, Jesus. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's see.